Thank you for joining us. Our goal at Church of the Rock is to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To learn more about us, please check out our website at churchoftherock.ca or stay connected with our free app available for Apple and Android devices. All right, so this morning I'm carrying on the series I began a few weeks ago called The Discipleship. And we've been talking about this thing called discipleship, which we all know, tell me what it means, a fully committed follower of Jesus Christ. Christ. All right, fully committed follower of Christ. You almost got it. You got, wow, we got all the words one way or another. Anyway, that's what a disciple is. And we've been going on this journey. We've been using this, you know, nautical metaphor of a discipleship. And you've probably been learning more about boats and ships than you wanted to know, right? But it's been kind of a fun journey. And every week we've been kind of drawing on a different aspect of this. Week one was every ship has a captain. Week two, every ship has a name. Week three, every ship has a helm. Week four, every ship has an anchor. And today, every ship has a crew. And so we're going to be talking to you, the crew, about being the crew. And, you know, one of the things I've been doing is I've been distinguishing the difference between a boat and a ship. And you've been following some of that as we go along. And it actually is not just the size. There's more to it than that. And one of the big differences between a boat and a ship is a ship needs a crew. A ship does not operate without a, a, a crew. And you can have a boat. doesn't matter how big the boat is. But if you run it by yourself, it's still just a boat. It's not a ship. Now, I have this neighbor at the lake. We're on Lake of the Woods. And he's one of my closest neighbors. He's from a family in Winnipeg that if I name the name, you would know and recognize this family. And he has the biggest honking boat on Lake of the Woods. It is so massive. In my opinion, it's too big, but who knows? And it's a 57-foot princess yacht on Lake of the Woods. And here, here's what it looks like. This isn't the exact boat, but it's what it exactly looks like, same color. And I'm showing you that picture because his boat has a garage for another boat. His boat could eat my boat. It could swallow it alive like a codfish being swallowed by a whale. And here's the thing about this boat. 57 feet long. It sleeps 12 people. It's still just a boat because it doesn't need a crew. He can drive it by himself, so it's still just categorized as a boat. Now, I don't know how many of you caught the big news this weekend, or this week rather, if you are a Star Trekkie fan... What happened? Anybody know? Captain Kirk, William Shatner, at 90 years old, went to outer space. Oh, it was so fantastic. There he is, Canadian William Shatner, now 80 years old, wearing his spacesuit. And Jeff Bezos, the owner of Amazon, who actually also owns Blue Origin, the space exploration company, offered him a free ride. Talk about good PR. Captain Kirk going to space and gave him this something like a half a million dollar ride into space. It was 62,000 miles straight up, 11 minutes the whole trip. And here's one of the things I learned about space travel even today that is going to be the same as in the future. They still don't wear seatbelts. Look at them flopping around in that cabin as they go weightless. And here's the thing I want to point out about this trip to outer space that Captain Kirk went on. Uh, He still had a crew. And here's the crew that he was with, the over the four that went up in this capsule. And uh, it was so cool. He, he came out. Anybody here watch it? Was I the only one that watched this? It was really neat. And he came out and he was actually brought to, to tears. 
It was like he had never been to space before. I'm thinking, for goodness sakes, man, you spent five years boldly going where no man has gone before. What are you so broken up about? And then someone told me, Pastor Mark, that's a TV show. It wasn't real. I said, really? I thought it was a documentary. Documenting this, you know, travel through space in the future. But what do I know? Anyway, it was so cool. And the thing I love about, about the, the Starship Enterprise, and I've pointed this out before, was the fact that they had a crew. And what made the story interesting was this crew. I mean, really, when you, when you think about the, the plot of Star Trek, it's pretty much the same plot every week. They get beamed down to an unknown foreign you know, planet. They get captured, taken hostage. Captain Kirk has to fight off the bad guy and get them free. And sure enough, they get loose every time, right? Works every time. So you pretty much know what's going to happen. But what was interesting was really the dynamism between the crew members. Like I told you last week, not only were they multi-ethnic, they were multi-gender, but what was really intriguing about it was the conflicting personalities that all came together as part of this crew. So you have the swashbuckling, seat-of-the-pants Captain Kirk, right? You've got the always logical, emotionless Mr. Spock the Vulcan. You've got the cranky Scotty the engineer down in the engine room, and of course the always frustrated Dr. McCoy. Dang it, Jim! How should I know? I'm a doctor! No! a mind reader. Every episode he had one of those lines and it just made it so much fun. When we look into scripture, here's where we're going with this. The first thing, job one that Jesus did was he put together a crew. Before he ever preached, before he ever did a miracle, before he ever did anything in ministry, he went and he cobbled together these 12 men. And he made a crew. Why was the crew so important? I'll tell you why. Because he was building a revolution, not just some lone rebel. If he was just a rebel and he went off and did his things and made a big stir, he would have been known in his day, no doubt about that. But once they crucified him, once he was dead on that cross, that would be the end of the story. The reason this has persisted for 2,000 years was he had a crew that after he was crucified carried on the revolution and it's been going on for ever since the, to this day for 2,000 years. And so that's the difference between a rebel and a revolutionary. So we look at these 12 men and, and you know that Jesus went to the Sea of Galilee to find these 12 men. Now, yes, he was from the region of Galilee, but he wasn't from the Sea of Galilee. He was from Nazareth. And if you've ever been there, it's dry, it's arid. Why didn't he pick men from Nazareth? Why didn't he get a group of carpenters together, right? He must have known some other carpenters. Although if you go to Nazareth, there's no wood there, so he might have been the only carpenter. And so why did he do that? Why didn't he get shepherds? I mean, God loves to use shepherds. Why didn't he get farmers? But no, he traveled to the Sea of Galilee, went to the beaches, to the shore, and he found some fishermen and he called them. And the reason is, this is my guess, the reason is, is they knew how to work in a crew. Even though their boats weren't that big, they were actually crewmen that worked together and they did not do it alone. So he started with people that already understood the concept of a crew. If Jesus was to come to Canada in the 21st century, where would he go to find disciples? He wouldn't be going to Saskatchewan. No offense, Pastor Steve. No offense, Pastor Aubrey. No offense, Larissa and the other half of the staff that's from Saskatchewan. But he's not going to Saskatchewan. Where's he going? 
Newfoundland, that's where he's going. Where do you find the fishermen? Where do you find the crew? You find them in Newfoundland. People who know how to work together as a crew. And if you have never in your lifetime been to Newfoundland, you need to go. I mean, it is one of the most fantastic places in Canada. It's beautiful. It's majestic. The people are super friendly. The only thing that will surprise you is they take Canadian money because it doesn't feel like you're in Canada. There was this American tourist. He was standing in the harbor in St. John's, and there was a scuba diving boat that was heading out of the harbor, and he turned to a fisherman standing on the pier, and he said, why is it that the, the scuba divers always fall over backwards into the water? To which the Newfoundland fisherman said this, Lord, thundering Jesus, use your head, man. If they fell forward, they'd still be in the boat. <laughs> Thank you for getting that. All right, so we're going to be looking at a little navigation story because what Jesus did after he got his crew together was he took them on a little boat trip. And so we're going to pick up this story. You've read this story. You know this story. I'm going to ask some questions about why this is happening. That's where we're going. So you think about it as I'm reading through the story. We're in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, and this is what it says. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he sent the multitude away. And when he had sent them away, he departed to the mountain to pray. Now when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the sea and he was alone on the land. Then he saw them straining at rowing for the wind was against them. Now about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. They supposed it was a ghost and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he went up into the boat to them, and the wind ceased, and they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure and marveled. So here's my question for you. I want you to think about They were all planning on going to Bethsaida, right? He said they were going to Bethsaida. All of them were going to the other side, including Jesus, who eventually joined them and they went there. But that's not what he did. So he sets them out in a boat towards the end of the day. We know what the timing is. In fact, the timing is very clear in this story. And so he sent them out in the boat. He says, go to the other side. Doesn't say how or when he's going to meet them. He goes up to a mountain to pray. And almost immediately, it says it was evening, they were straining in the middle of the sea because the wind was contrary to them. They were in the midst of a storm. And what did Jesus do? He watched and he prayed. Why wasn't he in the boat with them? If they were all going to the other side, why wasn't he in the boat? Was there not enough room for him in the boat? Was uh, he afraid the boat was going to sink in the storm and they were all going to die? Or was he praying that they wouldn't die? Why wasn't he with them? And it tells us how long. See, he was up in the mountain praying. He was looking out. Maybe there was a moon out that night. For some reason, he could see the boat. and He could see, see them rowing. And he could see they were in the midst of a storm. How long did he leave them out there? It said, at the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the water. The fourth watch. We know they went out before evening. The evening, the, the night was divided into four watches. The first watch was, was dusk. The fourth watch was dawn. That means they were out straining in the wind all night long. 10, 12 hours. He just left them out there anguishing. I'm sure he was praying for them. The big question is this. 
What was he doing? What was the task? What was, why wasn't he with them? I mean, he ended up joining them eventually. He came up, walked in on the water. Why did he leave them out there to strain? Presumably, he knew there was a storm coming. He went up and he watched from his vantage point. Why didn't he go earlier? Why didn't he go at 10 o'clock at night? Why didn't he go at midnight? Why didn't he go at 2 in the morning? And here's what I believe. You tell me if I'm right or wrong. I believe it was a training exercise. He was trying to see if these men were going to be able to survive as a unit, as a team together, and whether they would stand and whether they would fight for one another because the day was going to come where they were going to have to go out into real ministry and face adversity, and would they be able to endure and stand together as a team? I think that's what's going on. How many of you are familiar with the uh, Navy SEALs? You've all heard of Navy SEALs? They're they're this elite fighting force. In fact, considered one of the most formidable fighting forces in the world. And they're an interesting group of people because here's what you know about Navy SEALs. They are always in a team. They actually call them SEAL Team 6. And they are always part of a team. They are either teams of four or teams of eight. Very rarely teams of two, but they're never on their own. And they're always in the water because they're Navy SEALs. And so they come up out of the water and they work as a unit. And they're trained to work as a unit. They're not trained to be individuals. If you go and look at some of the stories we've followed for years and years about the CIA, you know, you've got Jason Bourne or Jack Ryan. and They're always this one man, you know, killing machines, right? Or, you know, MI6, you've got James Bond, one man, you know, licensed to kill not so with the team, team SEALs or SEAL teams. They work as a unit. They work as a team. They're trained as a team. And they're much stronger together than individually. And there is no I in the word team, but there's two in the word idiot. Just want you to think about that one for a moment. So here's how the SEAL team uh, training goes. Uh, the dropout for those that apply for the SEALs, Navy SEALs, is 80% dropout rate. They can't make it. First thing they do is they've got to find out if you can swim because you're, you're now in the Navy. And so this is what they do. They tie you hand and foot, throw you into a pool for an hour and make you bob up and, si- up and down from the bottom to the top and try to breathe and not die. So that's how they figure out whether you can swim. This would be a lot of fun to try at the Pan Am pool. Sometimes you want to get your friends to get, you know, tie you up and maybe gag you, make it even more fun. But it's pretty hardy training. But here's the thing. It's not individual training. That's just the beginning. Pretty much everything they do is to train you as a crew or as a team. And they do incredible things like this picture here. They are linked arms. They're lying on the beach with huge waves washing over their heads. And the whole goal of this is to not die. And you have to hold your friend down in case he gags. He's not allowed to get up. And you are learning to work in unison together, to breathe at the same time and exhale at the same time and to keep one another alive. And you're linked arms like this, because when you get into the battlefield, that's what it's going to look like. And you see, when you look into scripture, you discover that discipleship is not a team or sorry, an individual sport. It's a team sport. And you look and you think everyone in the New Testament, whether you realize this or not, had had a crew. John the Baptist was not a lone ranger. You go read the story. He actually had disciples. John the Baptist had a crew. Jesus had a crew. Paul had a crew. Peter had a crew. They all had a crew. So how does a crew work? What's the point of the crew? And what is the process to get us to be a formidable force? So I'm going to throw it up on the screen. Here's my points today. Every ship has a crew. Three things happen in a crew. Number one is the grading process. Number two is the growing process. Number three is the glowing process. So the whole thing starts with 
what I'm calling the grading process. That is the aggravation that happens when you begin to be thrust together. Jesus took these diverse people, thrust them together, and made them live and learn together. And there would have been an aggravation that would have taken place in order for them to become everything they were meant to be. How many of you managed to catch the uh, basketball documentary, The Last Dance, with Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls? How many saw that? Even if you're not a basketball fan, you probably love it. The basketball is great. The social dynamics are even better. And one of the things you learn from this, it follows sort of the, you know, the 90s to up until the 98 season where they won for the last time. It's sort of this anthology of, of their life. And one of the things you discover is that Michael Jordan was a real jerk. I mean, who knew? I always thought he was one of the nice guys, right? Hung out with Bugs Bunny and Space Jam. Super nice guy. All of a sudden, I find out that he's actually a jerk. And you watch this show, and he would provoke people, and he'd hit people, and he'd criticize people, and he would eviscerate people. He was one nasty soul on the court. But what you discovered was that aggravation that he created, whether it was right or wrong, and that's not my point, what it did in the end was it produced this incredible team that they were able to go and succeed at an extraordinary level. And I think that's what's happening in the scripture here. I think that's what he's doing with his disciples when he sent them out into the storm to create stress and an aggravating situation for them to ultimately grow from it. Now, some of you might be familiar with Gary Smalley. How many of you know that name, the relationship guy? And he's written many books. He's, he's most famous for the five love languages, right? I only have like one or two of them, but most people have five. And uh, he has things that he says about the family and about relationship and about marriage. And one thing I always found was intriguing was he talked about how a relationship goes through these various stages. And he says, every relationship starts in the superficial phase, Right, Very shallow, very superficial. Then it goes through the aggravation stage in order to get to the meaningful stage. And if you think about it, it's sort of true. If you want to have a great, meaningful relationship, you have to go through some aggravation to get deeper and to get there with them. And because he's a family guy, he says the best way you can create relational aggravation in your family is to go camping. He says, nothing's more aggravating than camping. It's sort of true, right? You're sleeping outside. You're with the bugs. You're with the bears. You're with the rain. You have to cook over a fire. You have to pee in the woods. Does it get any worse than that? And, you know, people, some people love camping. I've never really understood that. You know, growing up, our parents never once took us camping. Do you know why? Because they loved us. They weren't going to make us sleep outside. I mean, you go to a campground, you pay to sleep outside. On some level, that's got to be an insult to the homeless people. We stayed in hotels when we traveled. But Jesus, what does he do? He first sends them out in this ship, or this boat rather, and he you know, puts them into this storm, and then he takes them on a three-and-a-half-year camping trip, Right? I mean, they were outside. Look, they were outside most of the time. He says, you know, the birds have a nest and the foxes have a hole. Uh, Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. They were living outside, eating over a campfire. They were peeing in the woods. How much fun is this? Do you think there was opportunity for aggravation in those relationships? Uh Uh-huh. I'm telling you, there would have been lots of aggravation. I mean, how about this one when, when, you know, they're sitting around the campfire one night and John and James, the brothers, came up with a great idea and asked Jesus, can we sit on your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? What did the other disciples think of that? 
It specifically says, and the other 10 were indignant. Here's another question for you. How do you think Simon and Matthew got along? Simon was a zealot. Matthew was a tax collector. Think this one through for a moment. What was a zealot? A zealot was someone who was willing to fight and give his life and to kill in order to rid the Roman, Romans from the Roman occupation of Israel. The tax collector was also a Jew who was collecting tax money from his fellow Jews to give to the Romans who had put them under occupation. Do you think they would have liked each other? They would have hated each other's guts. I'm pretty sure in the night they would have liked to slit one another's throats. But Jesus thinks they're a good match, puts them into his crew to see if they can work it out. And how about Judas? Do you think he was the favorite? Think he was everybody's best bud? Who remembers what Judas did? What was his job? Remember? He was the treasurer. He carried the money. And what was he doing with the money? He was stealing it and going down to club regent and gambling it all away. That's specifically what the scripture says. Club regent, name by name, right in the red there. No, they wouldn't have liked this guy. And he put them into this tremendously aggravating situation in order for them to grow and to become who they are meant to be. And here's my point. You're not going to like it, but it's true. If we're going to mature in our relationships, we're probably going to have to go through the aggravation phase to get there, just like Jesus' disciples did. By the end, they were willing to die for one another instead of kill one another, right? So here's a, here's a little story to illustrate this. You might find it amusing. So I have this cousin, Cousin Ronnie, known him my whole life. He's about 10 years older than me, so we've never hung out. He's never been to my house. I've never been to his house. We see each other once a year. Family Christmas party. I see him. Here's how it goes. He goes, hey, Ronnie. He goes, hey, Mark. I say, Merry Christmas, Ronnie. He says, Merry Christmas, Mark. I'll see you next year. <laughs> and what do you think happens with that relationship? Nothing. It goes nowhere. And, and it has been, it was like that for year after year after year. I knew nothing about that guy. Knew nothing. It was, hey, Ronnie, how are you doing? And what happened one year was our family on my mom's side deciding that they were going to do a family reunion, full-blown, five-alarm, whole, whole worldwide family reunion, and we were going to do it at Penticton, British Columbia. Are you ready for this? At a campground. We were all going to get together and go camping. How good could that be? So anyway, I wanted to go, but I had a little bit of trouble because everybody was leaving on the Friday or maybe on the Saturday. I was preaching that Sunday. Couldn't go till Sunday afternoon. Ronnie phones me up and he says, I hear you can't go right away. I can't leave till Sunday. Do you want to ride with me? I said, sure. I thought to myself, finally, I get a chance to get to know Ronnie. I don't know anything about this guy. So he picks me up on Sunday afternoon. We drive together. We drive 10, 12 hours to, to Medicine Hat. We learned more about each other in that 10 hours than our entire life before that. I mean, I knew everything about him, his diet, everything, you know, and he knew a lot about me. So now it's one in the morning. We're really tired. We're in Medicine Hat. We're going to stop for the night. And because it's the middle of August, every one of those motels and hotels have a no vacancy sign on it. Finally, at the very end of the row, there's this dumpy, dumpy, dumpy motel. How many of you know the one? Yeah, you know, some of you have stayed there. And uh, we said, it's the only one left. It's a dump, I know. Let's go. We're just going to be there. We're going to sleep. That's all we're going to do. Let's just go crash. So we pull in. He didn't want to go to this motel, to, to his credit, but I said, there's nowhere else to go. So we check into this motel. <laughs> Turns out to be one of those motels they sort of rent by the hour. If you know, yeah, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So, so anyway, we check into our room. We crash into our bed. And there's something going on in the next room that I can only 
suggest delicately that someone was entertaining a woman of the evening, if you know what I mean. So there was noises coming out of that room. <laughs> In my adult life, I've never actually heard. And uh, there's stuff going on there, and it was driving Ronnie crazy. Eh? And he says, do you hear that going on? I said, yes, I hear that going. It's behind like a three-inch wall. I hear it. And he said, I'm going to phone the manager. So he phoned and it's the manager, and he complains. And the manager comes and bangs on that door and tells him to keep it down. Well, every 10 minutes, Ronnie was back on them, phoning the manager, waking me up and going, Mark, are you awake? I am now. Do you hear what's going on over there? Yes, I hear it because you just woke me up. I'm trying to sleep. And so anyway, he kept on phoning every 10, 15 minutes, every 10, 15 minutes, the manager's banging out that door. They're yelling at each other in the hallway right beside us. Finally, three in the morning, Obviously, the manager called the cops. The cops showed up, evicted whoever was in that room, and it was peace and quiet, and Ronnie and I went off to sweet sleep. In the morning, Ronnie wakes me up and says, Mark, wake up. It's, it's a quarter to eight. We've got to get going. We've got to get on the road if we're going to make it. So I get up, and I'm feeling, man, am I ever tired. Wow, that was a short sleep. And so I stumble, and I get my clothes on, and we stumble right into the car. And he pulls out of the drive and onto the highway. We're on the highway, and I'm looking, and I'm saying, Ronnie, if it's quarter to eight, why is it still dark out? And he, he looks at his watch. He goes, oh, I put my watch in upside down. It's quarter after four. <laughs> yeah. we, we, had, we had been asleep for an hour. And he woke me up with his stupid upside down watch. And we drove the way. And now I think, you know, I hate cousin Ronnie. This you know, <laughs> what's going through my head. But I'll tell you what happened. Now, whenever we see each other, which we still do at family gatherings, we have this bond because we spent this day and this night together. And, it, and now, I mean, it was terrible at the time, but now it's the best story. And we, 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 we're the hit. We're telling the story every year at the Christmas party. Well, you remember the time we spent the, the night at the Hooker Hotel in Medicine Hat? Oh, yeah, it was great. It wasn't great. It was dreadful. But it gives you one of these stories and it draws you together because you went through aggravation. So the first thing is the grading. The second thing is the growing. See, once you can get through the grading process, you actually begin to grow together. And there's something significant that happens. Give you a real great example of this. Um, One of the things we know about Paul and Barnabas in the New Testament was they were the dynamic duo. And they were just ripping it up and they were doing a great job. They were not traveling by themselves. They had a crew. Go read the story. There was multiple people as part of them. And in Acts 13, they go on their first missionary journey together, and they take a young man with them by the name of John Mark. And about halfway through the the mission trip, John Mark gets homesick. Turns out he's a little bit of a mama's boy, and he has to go home to mommy, and he leaves in the middle of the trip. Paul's not thrilled about it. So Acts 15, they're getting ready to embark on their second missionary trip together. And Paul, or sorry, Barnabas wants to take John Mark. And Paul wouldn't have anything to do with it. He says, no way, we're not taking that, that little mama's boy. He's not coming with us. He almost ruined the last trip. We don't need, you know, the anchor boy to be holding us back. And so they have this argument. And the scripture says it was no small contention. They are really going at each other to the point where they decided to agree to disagree. And Paul took Silas without those two. And Barnabas took John Mark and went off in a different direction. And the two actually never worked side by side again after that. Now, people have always read the story trying to figure out who was right and who was wrong in this story. And what's the answer to that? 
The answer to that is probably neither, because it was just a different perspective. Paul was a task-oriented guy. He couldn't put up with this guy that wasn't going to pull his weight. Barnabas, relational guy, son of encouragement, and he was going to invest in people no matter what, even if the task had to suffer. But here's what's fascinating about this story. You go into 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, and Paul is writing Timothy, and this is what he says to him. He says, bring John Mark with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. What does that tell you? That tells you that the commitment that Barnabas made to John Mark actually produced a winner in the end. And Paul recognized it and validated it. And so what happens is when we go through the grading process, the aggravation, whatever that might look like, if we can get through it, we end up growing as a result. And the way you grow is through team and through being part of a crew. Now, a few years ago, some of you remember this, we did a campaign called 40 Days of Community. Do you remember that? And we spent 40 days talking about community. We were going through the Rick Warren material from Saddleback. Rick Warren's church there, they have about 25,000 people. 35,000 people are in small groups. So they got more people in small groups than in church on Sunday morning, which tells you what their priority and their commitment is, right? And so anyway, every week as he was sharing these lessons with us on video, he repeated something again and again that I'd never really thought about before, but I believe it's true. And he said this. He said, all real, meaningful, spiritual growth comes from being part of a small group. And I, and I thought, you know, you can grow spiritually by yourself. You absolutely can. But you will not grow to the extent that you could if you were part of something bigger than yourself. And this was the concept that he talked about. And when we look at Jesus... Jesus took 12 guys and he poured himself. He spent more time with those 12 guys than anything else he did. That was his job one. That was the number one priority for him was to take this small group and they grew within this small group and became this formidable force, like I said. And I'm wondering if you've ever thought about this. People ask these kind of questions. Why did he pick 12? And people have lots of fancy answers. People say, well, that's easy. 12 tribes of Israel, therefore 12 disciples. And I go, What's the dip? What? How's the connection between the two? I don't see that as being that important. Others say, well, I know why. Twelve is the exact number that one of those little fishing boats in the Galilee will hold. That's why Jesus always had to walk on the water. There was no room for him in the boat. Well, that might be the case too, but I doubt it. I think that what happened is it's the ideal size for a peer group. And when you look at small groups, when they work together, let's say a support group or a Bible study, if you have a group of 30 or 40, that's too many people. And there's always a smaller group. And Jesus picked 12 people because that was the ideal size for a cohort. And he got this cohort together. He got this crew together. And then within that, there was an inner circle, was there not? Who was in the inner circle? Peter, John, James. And that's always true in most situations is that there is this smaller circle. And there's actually scientific evidence that backs this up. And I don't know if you're familiar with or have ever heard of the Dunbar number. And Robin Dunmore was a cultural anthropologist. And he determined that due to the size of our brain as a species, we have the ability to have about 150 meaningful relationships, which includes our family, our friends, and everything. And here, here's sort of the graph. And he picked this number. The 150 is called the, the Dunbar number. And he says, we're actually not capable of managing in any meaningful way more people than that. 
So people who have really large families, and they have 150 people in their family, they rarely have friends outside of that family because they don't have room for them. People who come from small families will often have loads of friends because they can manage more because their family is small. And so if you break it down a little further, if we look at this, this is sort of how it breaks down. People have you know, one or two or three really, really close friends. They'll have a circle of trust of maybe a little bigger than that, uh, like five, like in you know, the TV show Friends. You might have 15 good friends, 50 buddies, you know, someone that you have their email or their phone number and you call them once in a blue moon. Then the Dunbar number is the wedding and funeral, somewhere between 100 and 200. And if you want to know what your Dunbar number is, just wait till your funeral and then you'll know, right? <laughs> How many show up? These are the people who consider you a friend. And then you might have 500 acquaintances, people you've met and know, and then 1,500 uh, faces that you might be able to put a name to, but they're not friends and they're not acquaintances. And so what we discover is that we really have this you know, group, subset of, of about 150 people that are friends. Within that, there is a cohort. Within that, there is a peer group somewhere of 8 to 15 people, something like that, and probably a little bit of a smaller group other than that. And what we discover as we look at this, we discover that we grow best as people, and particularly spiritually within those groups. So I want to just tell you a little story about this, and then I'm going to give you some advice on this. So when I was first in ministry pastoring for the very first time was the only person on staff. We had no leaders. It was just me. It was just this little church that was struggling. And I did not have, I had lots of friends, but I didn't have one single pastor friend. I did not have a peer group that I was part of, people that did the same thing as I was doing. And I did not realize how much I was struggling and how impoverished I was because of that. And one day, I'm sitting in my office. We had a little building on Grant Avenue. And there's, I had an office window that faced the back lane. There's a guy standing there rapping on the window like this. And I'm thinking, who's this homeless guy? Like, does he want food or what does he want? So I went to the door to meet him. And he introduced himself. And his name was Ron McLean, who some of you know is Pastor Ron McLean of Gateway Church. He introduced himself. He lived just a couple of blocks from that building. He says, I feel like the Lord sent me over here to knock on your window, introduce myself, and take you for lunch. I said, I could eat. And so, so we went off to lunch. He bought me lunch, got to know him. And what happened was it, a friendship began that has actually been going on for 35 years now. But a friendship began. And then he told me that he had a group of, of pastors that he prayed with every Monday morning. He called them the Holy Huddle. And they gathered together. And so I went and joined them one Monday morning. There was about four or five of them. And we prayed together. And we did that every, every Monday for years and years and years. And that four to five grew to eight to 10 to 12 to 15. And then it kind of outgrew the space. And it became what's known today as the Pastors and Leaders Prayer Network in Winnipeg. It's about 150 people. And it meets in this building once a month. And, uh, and, but what I did was I kept on meeting with a smaller group, a smaller go- cohort of pastors, uh, about eight to 10 people. We've traveled the world. We've been on missions trips together. We've been to conferences together. We've got together as families. We've done all kinds of things together. Our life grew together. There's been three or four leaders within that that I had been part of for 30 of those years. And there was that smaller inner circle. And we grew together as a peer group. And if I look back at my life, 
whatever you know, small level of success I may have had, when I look back as an individual, I know I have grown more because of that cohort group than pretty much anything else I could have possibly ever have done on my own. I would not be, and you might not think I'm much to begin with, I get that, but I would not be who I am today if it weren't for the friends that I kept and the people that I worked with along the way. Are you following this? And I think this is so important because it's exactly what Jesus did. It was the model. So here's my simple advice to you on this. The first thing is this. If you are not part of a small group, if you're not part of a, a peer group, a cohort group, you need to find a group. You need to look around and say, where could I be part of something? And it's super easy in this church because we have a million groups going on, doing a million different things. And I'm not saying, do you have friends doing this or that or whatever? I'm saying, do you have a group of people that you're doing life together and you're doing a spiritual journey together and teaching and learning and growing together? Because you will grow more in that peer group than any other way you can. Way more than coming to church on Sunday. It's It's the truth. Second thing is this. If you are a young person or a new Christian, here's my advice to you. You need to go find a mentor, someone to disciple you. And you need to just put your antenna up, find someone who's older, more mature, someone you respect, someone you maybe know a little bit, and go ask that person and say, would you take me on? Would you mentor me? Would you disciple me? You say, well, that's kind of weird. Really? You have personal trainers, you have life coaches. Why wouldn't you have a spiritual mentor that would help you grow and mature? That's what scripture is all about, right? We see it all the way through. And, you know, if you're an older person and you're one of the people that is mature already, here's your job. Go find a younger person or a new Christian and mentor them. And if you're not discipling somebody, my question is, why not? You say, well, you know, I don't know if anything to offer. Are you kidding me? You've been sitting in church for a hundred years. What you have and know young people would be starving to get at. Don't be selfish with it. Find somebody. You say, well, the whole mentor thing, I don't know. Are you kidding? Look at Scripture. You look at every major player in Scripture, they all had a mentor, right? You have Moses and Joshua. You have Joshua and Caleb. You have Elijah and Elisha. You have Elisha and Gehazi. You have Jonathan, who was with David. You have, uh, you know, Jesus with all of his disciples, of course. You have, you know, Paul with Silas and with Timothy. You got Barnabas with John Mark. You got Batman and Robin. You got the Green Hornet. You got Cato. Even the Lone Ranger had Tonto. And he was the Lone Ranger. So we all need people that are going to be mentoring us or we're mentoring them. So that's my little bit of advice. Let me just land this on the last one, which is the glowing. So you go through the grading, you go through the growing, and then you get into the glowing phase. We look at these guys. This inauspicious group from the Sea of Galilee that would never have made any kind of difference in the world. But Jesus thrust them together as a crew, as a team, as a cohort. And they went and they changed the world even without him being present. In the very, very first day of the church in Jerusalem, 3,000 people came to Christ. You go into into Acts chapter 4, 5,000 came to Christ in one day. They took the city. They took all of Asia Minor. Within about 20 years, every single person had heard the gospel. They revolutionized the world. They transformed it because they were part of a peer group and they were part of a crew. When you look at our city of Winnipeg, I told you the story about some of my journey. 
We have, in some sense, been a spiritual capital in Canada. We hosted the largest March for Jesus in North American history multiple times of 50,000 people. Some of you were there. Some of you remember that. And you think, was that some sort of accident? It just sort of happened organically? Absolutely not. It came out of the fact that there was a group of men and women that had joined together and built relationships and were committed to one another. And as a result, we began to glow and shine in our city. Every one of you has so much more potential than you will ever know. And that greatest potential will come out of you when you become part of a crew. Because that's how you really grow. You get through the grading. You get through the growing. You get into the glowing. Become part of a crew. Because every ship has a crew. Let's stand together. All right, we're going to do something we do every Sunday. I want to ask you all to bow your heads. Close your eyes just for a moment if you would not mind. And we always give people an opportunity to invite Christ into their life. Because that's where the journey Begins. That's your invitation to come on board. And if you've never accepted that invitation, meaning this, I'm not asking you if you've been to church, you're at church right now, meaning you've never invited Christ into your life to be your Lord and Savior, and you'd like to make that decision today, you're not sure if you were to die tonight whether you go to heaven. With every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody's looking around. This is between you and me and Jesus. If that's you today, I want you to raise your hand so I can see it. Just take a moment. Let me see your hand, and uh, then I'll know. Thank you. Anybody else want to join these folks? All right. If you're online watching, there's a little hand that pops up on the screen. You click that, that hand, and that's your way of accepting that invitation. And so here's what we're going to do. We're all going to say a prayer together, whether you raised your hand or not. And we're going to be committing ourselves to being part of a crew today. So if you don't believe this, you might not want to pray it. But if you do, let's pray together. Lord Jesus... I thank you for the work of the cross. You died for my sin. You rose again on the third day. And you're inviting me onto your crew. And you're inviting me onto an earthly crew. And Lord, help me today to find that peer group, that cohort group that I could grow together with. Help me to be the mentor or the mentee that you desire me to be so that I might grow up into everything that you desire for me and that I might be a glowing force to the people in my world. Father, I thank you for the invitation. I accept it today and I move fully towards becoming a fully committed follower of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a shout today, shall we? Thanks for joining us. We want to help you know God, live free, and find purpose. To find resources to grow in your relationship with Christ, go to churchoftherock.ca slash next. You can also join us at one of our campuses, including our interactive online campus at churchoftherock.live. For locations, service times, or to support the ministry of Church of the Rock, please go to churchoftherock.ca or download the Church of the Rock app.